This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. There are so many acronyms in estate planning uh, that it will make you think that you have entered an alternate dimension somewhere. One of the acronyms it, it, wait, of I'm choice. Sorry, I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt. Is, yeah. is estate planning not an alternate universe? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, that alone will make you feel like you're in an alternate dimension than when you see uh, how how the sausage is made with all these acronyms. It's, it's mind blowing. The big one, actually, we've talked about this previously on the, on this podcast a couple of times, uh, particularly with my friend, Darren Case out of Phoenix, uh, is the SLAT, the Spousal Lifetime Access Trust. Um, these SLATs are fun. They come in different varieties, but to understand how they work, you need somebody who knows a lot about them. That's why Marty Shankman is back to discuss those. Marty, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My pleasure. These things are, they're all the rage. They're everywhere. And, and some people say they're great and some people say they're terrible. You know, it's, it's easy to say anything is good, bad or whatever when, when you're being that vague. I mean, what is it that we're actually talking about? Mm-hmm. And the reality is that, that a trust, um, and I don't know if this is where you wanted to go, but, but I, I use the analogy rather than what I'll call an acronym plan. Like, which acronym are you making? It's like alphabet soup as a kid, alphabet cereal as a kid. Right. We had Campbell's alphabet soup, too. But um, um, what I, I prefer to call it the Lego approach. You played with Lego as a kid? Yep. We all did. So Le- Lego, to me, you, you want to cobble together the building blocks, the components that work for a particular client and that client's circumstance and situation. And too often people get hung up on uh, the acronym du jour, which is SLATS now, because Spousal Lifetime Access Trusts are, are, it's a logical starting point. But you really need to get refocused on the building blocks that work for a particular client and what that client's circumstances are. Because anything from health, longevity considerations, um, what what other assets are involved that can't be transferred into the plan, their goals, their their marital status or not. I mean, all these things affect dramatically what may be appropriate. And I think too often people get hung up on wanting and, and I, 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 you know, clients are often at fault. They, you know, they hear from their golf uh, partners, you know, what the acronym du jour is and they come and ask. It's like sort of like the uh, patient going to the doctor asking for the purple pill because they saw the ad on TV and it said, go ask your doctor for the purple pill. So the SLAT is now the purple pill, but it's not the right medication for everybody. No, it's not. And and you're absolutely right that like Legos, when when you're going to build some big structure with Legos, you have to build the foundation of it first. And yep. you know, I know you and I are big proponents of you got to get all those foundational documents just right. And then everything else gets built on top if something is going to be built on top to reach a particular goal. Right. And it's also, by the way, another big misconception about slats is that they're all the same. I, I like what you said in your introduction that there's, you know, a lot of different varieties. There's lots of different provisions using my my analogy Lego that can be built into slats. 
And it may even be completely the wrong planet. Just just depends on the circumstances. But I, I think you wanted to kind of go through uh, an article I wrote for Forbes.com where I kind of uh, uh, talked. It was a little tongue in cheek, but I think it made some good points about the evolution of the the acronyms. And I think if people start with that, it's it's a, it's a good way for lay people to understand it. And it's also a good insight for attorneys to understand some of the components or building blocks that they they can build in. Can, can I just take a minute and sidetrack on, on, on something that may be sure. an interesting thought? We can't get too deep in it, and we don't have any of the, the, the graphics to help. But I recently did a um, series of um, models um, with a wealth advisor trying to model out what you can do to create a SLAT plan. And what was intriguing and what we explored, which – I've never seen happen in practice because the collaboration between the wealth advisor and the attorney doesn't seem to happen to that degree, but it should. And clients have to let us interact with the wealth advisors, but they often feel that they don't want to pay for it. But what we did is we, we started with what I, I, a premise that I came up with. I don't know, you know, I'll, I'm hitting you blindly, so don't, don't be offended. Uh, but, but I suggested that what I see happen with wealth advisors doing forecasts for slats is only one thing, and it's 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 really often counterproductive, and that is they'll do a model and say, okay, you can put X dollars into a slat, but that whole concept is a misnomer because what are you what what are the terms of the slat? What can you access in this trust? Because access is obviously, as you know, critical for the clients that are doing this that may need to get to that money. So. The other problem is that if you if you take this concept of, you know, let's say your financial goal is you want an 80 percent likelihood of not running out of money by age 95, which is pretty reasonable. And that's actually what I use for my own personal planning. But is that really an appropriate um, threshold to evaluate what can go into a slat? And I would argue no, because um, a 50 percent likelihood of your plan succeeding means with the most likely, because it's like a bell curve, you know, 50% likelihood of succeeding for a wealth advisor is the most likely scenario, the most likely market outcomes, most likely life expectancy, et cetera. If you can do a plan where you can give away X dollars and still have a 50% likelihood of succeeding with your financial goals without ever touching the slat, that's probably reasonable enough, perhaps just a theory to support that you can fund the slat and not be making a fraudulent conveyance or having to have an implied agreement with the trustee because in the mid-range of scenarios, the plan works. You don't have to have necessarily an implied agreement. Now, if the client wants to have a higher level of certainty, let's say 80% to age 95, then you may have to add in the client's spouse as a beneficiary. Then you may have to add a hybrid DAPT or SPAT or one of the other acronyms or monikers to, to, to make it work or a tax reimbursement clause. And you can add back access points and model those out to see how far you have to go down that continuum of adding back access points to get the client to a comfort level that works for them. So just a little aside on slats. Yeah, and I think that's a really helpful framing of the issue. We were talking about what's the goal and is is this the right thing? Is this the right uh, instrument to to reach right. the goal? And you do have to ask those questions when a client either in, in on their own says that they want to have a slat or maybe you suggest that maybe they should have a slat based on what they're telling you. And And you have to have some, you know, for people like us, you and I, I know we would be most comfortable if they tell us, I really don't need this money. 
but I just want to have it potentially available. And usually when, when it happens with me and I have this conversation with the client, I'll say, okay, that's great. Well, we can, we can stick this into a normal irrevocable trust. You can kind of have indirect access to it because, because we can do loans, we can do transactions with the trust. So we don't, you don't have to have your hands totally off the wheel in that sense. And sometimes they say, nah, that doesn't bring me enough comfort. And then we, and then that gets me to the next level. Like, well, okay, if we added in your spouse as a beneficiary, then that's a slat. And here, here are the rules of the road for the slat. And then only would we do the slat if they're going to retain enough property to meet a threshold like you're talking about. They're going to have a more than 50% likelihood of never having to dip into that slat for themselves. Right. And that, that may not be, I, I've never seen any studies or analysis done and I have no, mm-hmm. no law on it. It's just a suggestion as a starting point to have that discussion. But, but to, I, I think if we go through the eyelet um, and the, 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 the development of all these other acronyms, we can up to the backdoor slat. I think some of this will make more sense to some of those listening and it'll help piece it all together. But, totally but agree. Yep. yeah. So, so, but, but one of the key concepts that we've been talking about for if we, in case we've confused people and I apologize is you're trying to get assets out of your estate to protect them from creditors and claimants, which often gets forgotten because the other main reason for doing slats and any of this type of planning is, oh, gee, the exemption amount is going to be cut in half in 2026. How do we how do we safeguard assets before that happens? And oh, by the way, who knows if the law will change, if that will go through. It's on the books now, but, you know, it seems that every new administration, there's significant changes in the law. But right now that's on the books, and I think the prudent thing is to plan for it. But if you add in the fact that this kind of planning can provide asset protection, there's really – I don't know of anybody that shouldn't be doing asset protection. We live in an incredibly litigious society. So if there's any potential tax benefit, that's great, but why not do it for asset protection as well? And then the question becomes, where do you go with the planning? And maybe an easy way to frame it out, and then we can go through the acronyms based on what you have, is on the far – it's a it's a continuum. So on the far right extreme, the goalpost on the right side is, let's say, you give money to your heirs, whether it's kids. We'll just use kids as an example uh, in trust because nothing should be outright. It's not protected. You, you lose the tax benefits. But you could give it to your kids, and you have zero way to ever touch that money. No way possible. That's on the far right extreme. On the far left extreme is where you get every possible access point you can have to the trust. So instead of the trust being a spousal lifetime access trust, and by the way, if you're single, that doesn't work, you could have a, a, a self-settled trust where you're an immediate beneficiary. You could also still have the ability of the trustee to make you loans. You can have the ability, since it's a grant or trust, to be reimbursed for income taxes. So there's all these different access points you can have. And if you have a spouse, you can throw them in too. So now you have every conceivable access point. So that's the, the far right goalpost of no access, far left goalpost of every conceivable access. The problem is, as you move down that continuum from no access to all possible access, if there is such a thing as all possible, but as much as we can think of when we're drafting it, each access point may, yes, give you more access to get at the money, but it also makes the assets in that trust more susceptible to a claim by a creditor that somehow you retained a right to it, so why can't they get at it, or that the IRS is going to argue that you've retained an interest in the trust. So where on that continuum you go will, yes, be dictated to a degree or should be governed, nothing's dictated, by uh, your circumstances. Financial modeling is a great way to get a, a, a handle on it. But in the end, 
It's also really a gut feel for the client. Where are you comfortable? I could pick a point that makes sense to me or you as a lawyer. We could pick a point on that continuum that makes sense for the client, but that should only at any any time just be a suggestion because ultimately it's it's the client's comfort level. If you're not going to sleep at night doing this, even if it makes sense to the financial advisors, the lawyers, and the accountants, don't do it. Don't do it. But I think the piece people miss is doing something provides asset protection. If you're afraid of losing control, how much control do you have knowing the money in your hands could be reached by a credit or malpractice claimant or, you know, the estate tax potentially without limitation? I mean, that's that's something that people don't factor in. I think oftentimes people have too simplistic of a, a perspective on what control is. The money in my pocket, yes, I can go out and do anything I want with it at any time, but it's also reachable by a creditor or a claimant. Is that really as comfortable as I think? I don't believe so. Yeah, it's an interesting way to frame that in terms of what control really means. That if you, yeah, if you have it in your pocket and you can do whatever you want with that money, that is control. But if you have a creditor, they can reach into your pocket just as well as you can. So is it really control at that point? Let, let me correct the goalpost that I set up before. Sure. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that we're gonna build a third goalpost because I had said the far left goalpost was the self-settled trust with loan provisions and tax reimbursements and spousal beneficiary and everything in a floating spouse if we get time to talk about it. There's actually a further left goalpost, which is do nothing, keep it in your pocket. I didn't put that on the radar because usually when we're having these discussions, it's where you go for what type of trust structure and what type of provisions. But yes, that has to be there too. And you're never giving all of your assets to trust. You need something outright. So you know, something needs to be kept there, but very important for people to understand it's not just a tax issue. It's a creditor issue as well. And we all should want to protect our assets. Yeah, absolutely. Creditors in a very broad sense, too. I mean, we've talked, been talking about uh, you being sued. Uh, divorce. You, know, so you run up, you you, but divorce is the big one. I, I, I tell all my clients, I said, no, 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 the big creditor, the big risk factor in family wealth is divorce. Let's, let's go a step further. There's more. As you get on in years, um, you're, it's very rare that your abilities don't decline. Mm-hmm. Elder financial abuse is epidemic. Identity yep. theft is epidemic. So, you know, there's really a whole wide array of risks that can affect an asset. Having something in an irrevocable trust, especially if you do it the way I typically do it with an institutional trustee and all sorts of other safeguards built in, to me is far safer from all these different types of risks than is an asset left in your own name. It's not just about taxes or creditors. Absolutely true. I, I couldn't agree more. So we were we were talking a little bit about these slats and their evolution. Um, yes, evolution. From what is an, what is an islet, uh, everybody seems to, for the most part, get at least in broad concept what, what an islet. So maybe let's, we start ex- for with the islet and then like step into the, all these yeah, fancy let, slats. Let, let, let's explain the acronyms in case yeah. there's mere mortals out there that don't know what an islet is. <laughs> there could be. Yeah, irrevocable life insurance trust. So one of the most common planning tools that has been around for a little longer than forever, I think Adam and Eve had one, is an insurance trust, right? So, you know, if you have kids, like I guess Adam and Eve did, you buy life insurance to address mortality risk. It makes perfect sense. And years ago, you're too young to to know this, but years ago, we only had a 600,000 exemption. And when we had an exemption like that and somebody would buy a million-dollar term policy, that insurance policy alone, if it was in their estate, would uh, create a taxable situation. And 
the, the solution was to have the insurance owned by an insurance trust. And it was very common, uh, and especially when you have two um, um, spouses that are both working, to have each have an insurance policy on the life of the other. And because of the risk of estate tax way back yonder, we would have those each owned by a separate insurance trust. And then the acronym followed Irrevocable Life Insurance Trust, or ILIT. Um, those insurance trusts were often much simpler than the types of trusts we, dra- we draft today. Um, and that's important to know because if anybody has uh, um, an insurance trust or clients with insurance trusts, most of them should be revisited before 2026 because it's a great tool to decant those or merge those into better crafted trust. And if you do it before 2026, you can do a late allocation of GST exemption. Uh, I don't think we have the time to get into that, but uh, the slats and all these other techniques can, in, can can incorporate the insurance planning. So keep that in mind. The typical insurance trust, if I set up a trust for my wife just to make it simple, she would be um, uh, the trustee of my trust and the primary beneficiary. Uh, if she was the beneficiary, you would limit her ability to make distributions or access money to a health education, maintenance, and support, another acronym, HEMS, health education, maintenance, and support, so it's not included in her estate or reachable by her creditors. And her and the kids and grandkids would all be beneficiaries of the trust, and she'd set up a similar trust for me to own her policy. Now, back then, nobody talked about the reciprocal trust doctrine. Nobody cared. Uh, theoretically, when we looked at it, my argument was that um, – um, um, because we're at different ages, different health, different genders, that that alone changed the economics of the transaction. But no one seemed to worry about reciprocal trust doctrine. And now there's reciprocal trust gremlins hiding behind every slat tree. Um, so the islet was a mainstay of planning. And then as time went on, we began to talk about spousal lifetime access trusts. And I think those discussions really got Hot and heavy in 2012 when we thought the exemption was going to go from $5 million down to $1 million. So everybody was trying to plug money into trust to, to, to capture the exemption before the law changed, which it never did. And, uh, gee, if you were worth $10 million and putting $5 million into a trust, or if you're worth $20 million and each spouse put in $5 million, you better have access to it. So by having the spouse as a beneficiary of each other's trust – you, you would each have access to that 10 million. So theoretically, if you were worth 20 million, you put 5 million to each slat back in 2012, you still had access to 100% of your money because husband was a beneficiary wife's trust and vice versa. And I'm going to use husband and wife, not spouse one, spouse two, because it gets way too confusing. Um, so that's, that became really a mainstay of planning, the spousal lifetime access trust. Now, what's the difference theoretically between a slat and an eyelid other than the letters in the acronym? Nothing. Because the islets were slats. Is every slat an islet? No, because most of them don't have insurance. But somewhere along the line, and unfortunately after I set up my non-reciprocal slats that me and my wife did in 2012, I realized, gee, like a V8 moment, why not put insurance provisions into every slat? Because why not have them own insurance? And what's the main thing you need? Lots of, lots of the slats, probably the majority of them that I've done are directed trusts because clients own real estate or business interests, and if they're putting those into a trust, they want to continue to direct how those uh, uh, assets will be funded in a business that they're operating, and it's not a tax-sensitive power, generally speaking. So the client may be the investment advisor or investment trustee, and we generally would have an institutional trustee. So I would set up a, a separate insurance trustee so the client 
doesn't have to serve because you can't serve as sort of the insurance decision maker on insurance on your life and your own trust and still have it out of your estate. I think it raises a 2042 issue. Uh, and if there are people that speak English, you just can't be in charge of your own insurance decisions. So you add another trustee, not a big deal to do. If you're using drafting software, you click a button, not a biggie. Um, but I, I like adding insurance provisions, even if the client has no insurance to all the slats, because slats is much easier to use for insurance purposes, because if you're putting millions of dollars into use up exemption, you don't have to make annual gifts. You don't have to worry about crummy powers, which I mean, don't even answer the question, but how many people do crummy powers properly? Don't answer the zero. question. The, don't zero. The the answer don't, zero. No, no, don't say that on tape. But, but. Okay, you, you, it's some number that's there you go. less Stop. than 100. Stop uh, that. Stop. So, so the eyelid conceptually is not really any different than a slat. But what's really happened that does differentiate the modern slat from the old style eyelid, and this depends on the draftsperson and what you're doing is the modern trust, just because a modern trust drafting goes on forever, the old eyelets used to end at age 25, 30, and pay the money out to the kids. And that's another reason to decant all those old eyelets. They're awful. There's no divorce protection for the kid if the money's paid out at 30 or some specified age. And usually by the time we see these, the parents may still be alive, but the, the kids are past the age when they get the full payout. So decanting them makes a world of sense. And they're rarely, they're rarely GST exempt, and why not make it GST exempt, especially if the GST exemption is going to be cut in half in 2026 and not use it. So we went from eyelets to slats. Conceptually, there is no difference. The real differences are just modern trust drafting, not, not because of the difference in what the planning is. It's an acronym without – the difference in the acronyms is almost without meaning right. if you take out the modern changes, which a modern eyelet should look just like a slat. So an eyelet is a slat, but maybe, you know, maybe we liked using slats because they were more appealing to sell them to clients, which we should never do. You don't want to sell anything because it fits the use of the, the, the exemption in the current environment. And in 2020 and 2021, when we thought literally every week there was another tax proposal by the Democrats uh, that would have dramatically altered everything that we knew about estate planning, people were running like crazy to do non-reciprocal slats to use exemption and get grant or trust in place before the Sanders or Von Holland or uh, pass, uh, REL tax proposals would have nixed all that planning. So sort of we evolved from eyelets to slats. What if uh, a client stumbles out of the 19th hole at the country club on a Sunday afternoon and they email you and they say, I want a spat? Well, I know you said slat, but I want a spat. Before we get to the spat, there's a variation of slats called a slant spousal lifetime access non-grantor trust. So you can do a slat and structure it much harder to do because you need a non-adverse party to approve distributions to spouses, and nobody really likes that. And there's some questions on that, but you can do it as a non-grantor trust if a client's got significant business interests that they're going to sell and they live in like California, New York, or one of the other high-tax states. So just to make sure we have all our acronyms, don't forget the slant. Now, if a client comes out and says they want a spat, if we could, I think we should do DAP, hybrid DAP, then SPAT, because I think okay. the sequence will make it uh, a little less uh, difficult to follow. And and I don't know if listeners understand all this stuff or familiar and that we're just being boring, but um, I think it helps to visualize all these things. So so what is a domestic asset protection trust and what really makes it different from a SLAT? And then we'll get to hybrid DAPs and SPATs. So, so a domestic asset protection trust, 
is a trust that I set up for myself in any one of the now 19 jurisdictions, I believe, that permit these types of trusts. And I think that number will grow. And by the way, in 1998, there was only one jurisdiction. Alaska was the first jurisdiction in the country in 97 or 98 that set up um, uh, legislation that permitted you to be a, a beneficiary of a trust you create, and yet it'd be arguably outside of your estate because under state law, your creditors couldn't reach it. And that's the litmus test for estate inclusion. And for the sake of full disclosure, because, oh, so many people will never do adapt and they don't make any sense. I set up adapt within six months for myself of the statute being enacted. And I haven't had a distribution out of it since 1998. I mean, I think it's going to be hard to prove that I had some kind of implied agreement with anybody if I haven't seen a penny in however many years, 1998 till today is. Um, And I, I, I know that there's some arguments about constitutional issues, but in all the years since 97 or 98, when the first legislation was passed, there's only a handful of cases that went uh, against DAP plans, and they were awful, not bad, awful fact cases where people did really things that no no professional would ever recommend. Uh, the Klobaca case, I think, was maybe the most recent one, and that was where people in Montana had a judgment against them and then purported to transfer actual real estate that was based in Montana into an Alaska trust to protect them. Wow. You can't transfer land and dirt in one state into a trust. and It's first got to be in an LLC to make it an intangible. And, oh, by the way, if you have a judgment already against you, I don't think that's the time to be transferring anything. But But the concept of adapt, and we talked about when we set up our continuum in the beginning, that's really far to the left. I mean, that's probably just the, the one step away from you owning the assets outright. But arguably, it gives you a measure of protection, and arguably, it has it out of your estate. So adapt is perhaps the ultimate access. And for practitioners listening, if a client is hemming and hawing or feeling uncomfortable about a slat, offer the DAP. Just let them know that there's more uncertainty and more risk which can't be quantified. There's no way to put a thermometer in and say this is, you know, 42 degrees riskier. It's unmeasurable. But clearly they have more access. Clearly they have more risk. We don't know how to measure any of that. But it's a way to show the client that you're giving them the ultimate access point in an irrevocable trust. Now, because people – and by the way, what is what is the difference right, between a slat and a DAP? If you're drafting a slat, how would you turn it into a DAP? What what monumental changes do we need made to the trust? And I'm simplifying. Yeah. Well, you really need two, right? You need you, the settlor, as a beneficiary, and the second is it that's needs to be f- in a that's, so so where yeah. you list that the beneficiaries of this trust are my spouse and all descendants. You list the beneficiaries of the trust are me, my uh-huh. spouse, and all descendants. <laughs> so it could be like one word. Well, not a lot of change. Uh, not a lot. However, every one of these 19 beautiful jurisdictions, and I'm trying my hardest to make Arizona the 20th, um, also has very specific provisions in their statutes. You got to sneak those into the document. But other than that, it's but conceptually, much a all you're doing is just yeah. adding your, yourself in as a beneficiary. Yeah. And then there's some boilerplate that every state requires. And I know Alaska. I don't know if other jurisdictions requires a solvency affidavit, but I do that for almost every large transfer anyhow, because it just makes sense to protect the client and the practitioner, right? If a client signs under penalties of perjury that they're not aware of any claims, uh, matrimonial issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that they have uh, sufficient assets to meet their living expenses after the transfer, it only looks good for them if somebody argues fraudulent conveyance, and it only protects the practitioner if somebody chooses to challenge it or the client says, I don't have enough money to live on. So, you should do the solvency affidavit anyhow. And I know I'm, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but 
conceptually other than, yes, state law boilerplate. And obviously, with a slat, you could arguably have an individual trustee. I like to use institutions. And by the way, Brent, almost all, most of the slats that I do are in trust-friendly jurisdictions, one of those 19 DAP jurisdictions with institutional trustees. And I can tell you why if you want. Sure. I have my own theories, so we'll see if we match up. So one of the problems is my wife and I, if we're typical like clients, which we're not, and I'll tell you why, uh, if my wife got a distribution from the slat I create for her, she would put that distribution into a joint checking account. And if that weekend I'm paying the utility bills, I'm actually spending money that I'm not a beneficiary of on living expenses for me. I don't love that. My wife and I are a little different. We don't have any joint accounts. Most clients have all joint accounts, like for checking and bill paying and things like that. We've been separate since forever for the reasons like this, asset protection, et cetera. But if I'm in a DAP jurisdiction and you argue I accidentally inadvertently got benefit from the trust, my position is, well, it's not quite there, but I can at least try to argue that, you know, so it's a DAP, it's a self-settled trust because you're treating me as a beneficiary, but I'm in a jurisdiction permitting that and I have an independent institutional trustee. So I think it's a backstop for that. And I also I like to do them in different states because I think that helps break the reciprocal trust doctrine in different if, institutions. If you're going to do sort of his and hers, you know, one, one yes. for husband, one for spouse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I'm the same. I like to have an independent trustee. I like to, if you're going to have the access, at least on the, that who is going to hold ultimate legal title to the property, who is going to have those administrative powers in some sense. Um, I want that in the hands of an independent party. If I can get the client to agree that, that independent party will also have the distribution powers, then that makes me the happiest too. Just to get so, a little bit more, it, it's, I tell my clients, this is for nervous lawyers. You're doing this for a nervous lawyer. So just please bear with me. Yeah. I've been pretty successful convincing people to do that because again, you shouldn't be setting up a, any of these trust structures where you're going to need access immediately and on a regular basis. Right. And if you don't really need access, why not not have an institution hold that power? One of the reasons I like that is if the numbers aren't right and you need access, the argument the IRS or creditor is going to make, ah, you had an implied agreement with your spouse as a trustee, your Uncle Joe is, or Aunt Jane as a trustee. You can't tell me somebody had an implied agreement with a trust company. They're not people. They don't have right. an implied agreement. So right. it just seems to be a lot safer for the plan if you can do it. So we've talked about eyelets, how they became slats or slants, and then we talked about daps because somebody needed more access. And daps became more commonly used, leaving aside the asset protection, which, you know, I, I don't want to get into here because we're more focused on tax, although we recognize asset protection is a very important motive. But but in 2012, when people were trying to use up $5 million of exemption, and they may have been worth, you know, $8 million, $10 million, you know, can you give away 50% of your wealth? It's pretty high. So you know, having a trust that had access for the client uh, seemed to make a lot of sense. And a lot of those dApps that were done, we had a 10-year, one-day fuse on it because that gets you outside of the Bankruptcy uh, Protection Act because a bankruptcy trustee can uh, disavow, I don't think that's the right word, but un undermine a, a or redo a transfer within 10 years to a self-settled trust or similar device, whatever that mm -hmm. may mean. I don't think right. we still know. So, so having, having a 10 year fuse that I can't get to it for 10 years takes me out of the bankruptcy issue, which is something that's pierced, uh, in a number of the cases, um, self-settled trust. 
So now a lot of practitioners have said, oh, gee, you know, self-settled trust, it's a cute idea, but I'm too worried that, you know, a state like New York or California that doesn't permit self-settled trust will apply their law and overturn uh, a trust that you created in South Dakota. Um, and that remains an open issue, although there have not been a lot of cases where these things have been overturned. In those cases, as we discussed, awful facts. So I don't know that that's a winner, but I do get that there's a risk, and I understand that. So the concept became developed called a hybrid DAPT. What's a hybrid DAPT? It's a DAPT, but instead of me being a beneficiary of my trust today, Brent has the power to add me back as a beneficiary. So arguably, the trust is not a self-settled trust. And if I'm in a state like New York, which I am, uh, New York can't pierce it because it's not a self-settled trust until Brent adds me back. And oh, by the way, Brent holds that power in a non-fiduciary capacity, so there's no standard by which he can uh, be held to to have to add me back. So it seems pretty secure. So that's the concept of a hybrid DAPT. And then some people felt that wasn't cute enough. So instead of Brent being able to add me back, we're going to make it less obvious. Brent can add back descendants of my grandparents. Oh, gee, that includes me. Somehow some people think Surprise. that's safe, safer. Yeah. Right, surprise. That, that's safer to add back descendants of my grandparents. Maybe it is. And that's certainly a technique that I've used and others use, and that's called a hybrid DAPT. What's the different from, difference between a DAPT and a hybrid DAPT? Well, I gave Brent the power to add me back. What's the difference between a hybrid DAPT and a SLAT? Well, in addition to my spouse and descendants being beneficiaries, there's a provision that says, hey, Brent, in a non-fiduciary capacity, you can add me or descendants of my grandparents back. That's kind of it, folks. And you don't technically need all those DAP provisions because it's not a DAP, although maybe some people put them in. That's it. So what's the difference between the the, the, the hybrid DAP and an eyelet? Same thing that I just said for a SLAT. That's all it is. So the acronyms get really complicated, and we shouldn't get acronym-focused, and we shouldn't do acronym plans. I like the LEGO approach. Which of these provisions? Tax reimbursement, independent trustee, institutional trustee, which state – Lego, which blocks are we putting in? Are we putting in a hybrid DAPT or a DAPT or a non-grant or trust drafting? Cobblestones, building blocks. So so that's the hybrid DAPT. Now, just to take it a step further to get to the SPAT, and I'm sorry I took a longer way, but I thought it was just a little more logical to get there. Hang on. So some people decided to say, oh, my, you know, too many people know about hybrid DAPTs, and maybe those aren't secure enough. I'm not aware of a single case or law or anything that really addresses hybrid DAPs. We've had the few DAP cases like Klobaca and a few others, Mortensen, Huber. There haven't been a lot of those. I'm not aware of anything on hybrid DAPs, but people are always trying to stay a step ahead of the curve. So the 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 the, the latest acronym in, in, in the sequence is a SPAT, Special Power of Appointment Trust. And in a sense, while it's very a clever idea, it ain't anything new that we haven't done forever. Because all it is is based on a special or limited power of appointment, and we've used those in planning and drafting for, you know, Stone Age. So they're not new. What the SPAT does is say, hey, instead of me giving Brent the power to add me back as a beneficiary, because if he adds me back, now we have a hybrid, we have a DAP to self-settled trust. And gee, if I'm in a jurisdiction, well, now I know Arizona's not yet a DAP jurisdiction. I wasn't sure, but if I if I lived in Arizona, well, golly. Arizona may pierce through that trust, arguing that uh, under the Constitution, full faith and credit, blah, 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 they, they don't have to give full faith and credit to South Dakota or Alaska, Nevada, wherever my trust is, and they can reach it. 
So instead of giving Brent the right to add me back as a beneficiary, I give Brent a special or limited power of appointment so it doesn't get reached by his creditors or included in his estate. Brent has, in a non-fiduciary capacity, the right to tell the trustee, give Marty some money. He can direct with a limited power of appointment for me to get certain assets. That's it. So I'm never a beneficiary, so arguably can never be characterized as a self-settled trust. That's the spat. Now, by the way, now that we've gone full circle, I lit slat, slant, dapped, hybrid dapped, spat. There's no reason that you have to do an acronym plan, and you shouldn't only be doing slats. You should find out where on that continuum the client needs to be. So we started off with an irrevocable trust just for, let's say, kids. And then on the far left, leaving aside outright ownership, doing nothing, because that's not a plan, um, is adapt with all the other access points, spouse, floating spouse, uh, tax reimbursement, all that stuff. But along the continuum, you have the slat is maybe the first step after no beneficiary. Then you have perhaps the um, uh, spat, the hybrid dapt, and the dapt. Keep in mind, and this is critical, nobody, even the proponents of all these techniques, you can't weigh or measure the incremental risk versus the incremental access of any of these things. It's kind of like just a theoretical construct. But you can move the client along the continuum, and that's why I said I like the Lego approach. You want to spat. You can have a, a trust that has both adapt or hybrid adapt and spat provision. I can give Brent the power to a limited power of appointment to me. I can give a, a buddy Joe of mine the power to add me back as a beneficiary. I can have a spat slash hybrid adapt, and I can add to that, you know, tax reimbursements, loan provisions, floating spouses. You have all these different ingredients or Lego building blocks. You want to build the trust pattern that the client's circumstances and comfort level, which is often not correlated with the facts, it's just feelings, makes them makes them want. And that's how you piece together all these different acronyms. I also think it's important to note that as you use a SLAT or a SPAT or hybrid DAPT or DAPT, you're giving more and more access, which for certain clients is important. But instead of doing two non-reciprocal SLATs, what if you did a hybrid DAPT and a SPAT? You now have given both spouses more access, and there's qualitative differences. We can't measure them between the access level they each have, so that should help break the reciprocal trust doctrine, I would argue. So by using a more robust plan than just a SLAT plan, you can do a SPAT and a hybrid DAP for each one spouse a SPAT, the other a hybrid DAP, more access than SLATs, more differentiation to break the reciprocal trust doctrine, and much cooler acronyms that they can talk about after the 19th hole, going back to Brent's yeah. example. Stumbling out of the 19th hole. That's the important That's the only way you there. get out of the 19th That's hole. That's it. Well, okay, so let's say uh, I have uh, – I'm your client. I've stumbled out of the 19th hole. Do you think you've anyone's already, still awake? No, nah, no, nobody's listening. Don't worry about it. Okay. Uh, you can say anything you want now. So uh, the uh, you've, you've explained all these things to me. I'm like, yeah, Marty, that's great. What I really want, because I heard about this thing is a backdoor, backdoor, oh. backdoor, hybrid, no, backdoor, yes, that's what I want. Uh, so we weren't content with the acronyms that we've just gone through. No. So there's now another another acronym that uh, is, is, is critical, and that, or a concept called a backdoor slat. So when I set up the slat for my wife, I give her the power to appoint back to a trust for me. And under many jurisdictions that don't permit self-settled trusts, they permit this type of structure. 
So not being content to say, well, it's a slat with a power of appointment. We have a new moniker, the backdoor slat, because I'm kind of getting in through the back door as my wife appoints it back to me. At death would be yes. the, the distinction. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And which, by the way, that's the errors. That's the Arizona statute. We have this sort of like in between thing. We don't have a full on dapped statute, but we do have a statute that that blesses the backdoor slap. So, so that's, that's another another that's approach. Us. But I think yeah. I think what the stage or the table that we've set is you have all these different monikers, all these different acronyms, all these different tools. And what you really want to do is cobble together the ones that make sense for the client. You have to be mindful that a lot of these tools, you have to be in one of the DAP jurisdictions, which I prefer to do because I think it's just safer from a tax or asset protection perspective. I said earlier, I like to have them each in a separate jurisdiction with an institutional trustee, and usually it's an administrative trustee because it's family business or real estate holdings. And the truth is, if we're thinking about people using exemption, the exemption now, can we just round it to 13 million so my head doesn't throb? So if it's 13 million, half of that is six and a half mil. You kind of need to give over six and a half mil to use up any of the bonus exemption before 2026. And even if you're just doing a, a, a trust structure for asset protection or start growth, we have a lot of clients well below the tax threshold now. It's not so much about bonus exemption, but just starting to grow assets outside of their estate so they never – they kind of cap their wealth level so it'll stay below what the exemption in 2026 may be. And we don't – listen, we don't even know. What if, you know, Bernie Sanders is elected president and puts through his tax bill? I mean, you know, stranger things have happened in Washington. You don't know. So getting the planning in place is 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 great, but you want to pick the, the approach that makes sense for the client. And and if you're going to have six and a half million of exemption, my feeling is if you're putting even five million, three million in a trust, it's a lot of money. If it's going to cost you three, four, five grand a year for an institutional trustee to enhance the asset protection and the likelihood of the tax results working and to get you better administration, we were talking offline about the issues with trusts not being administered right, much better chance of proper administration if there's an institutional trustee. It's not a big price to pay for people to do that each year. Yeah, it's a pretty low premium for that insurance policy, so to speak. You know, get yeah, all the well, benefits. Pretty low, pretty low threshold. Yeah, if only they viewed coming back to us for an annual review meeting the same way. They'll spend five grand on an <laughs> yeah. institutional trustee, but they they balk at coming back to us for five hundred dollars for a quickie meeting. But that's another well, topic that's for another, another day. Topic. Yeah, I know. Another we can day. go on and on about that. Client management topics we can talk about all day long. Uh, Marty, I I think we've probably filled up everybody's heads with more acronyms than they ever thought possible. Uh, so we'll leave it here. If people are trying to find you, what's the best way for them to do that? Just go to my website. That's okay. I don't want to put an advertisement out. That's not necessary. Right. Happy, happy to help you anytime, Brent. I well, of course, and and I will I will add a link to your website to the show notes so people looking for Marty can find it there. I will do the advertising for you if if people are looking for really great resources on a whole host of basic to complex uh, estate planning topics. Marty's website is a very useful place to go. It's a place I go uh, sometimes when I'm looking for answers for things. So I, I recommend other people look there, too, if they're looking for answers to any sort of estate planning topic. Marty, as always, thank so you so if they much don't, for if doing they don't, it. If they don't have enough acronyms, they can go there and look Yeah, exactly. If you, if, you, if you haven't got enough acronyms, don't worry. There are more, and Marty has explained almost all of them. So, well, thank you again. I, I always appreciate your time and, and chatting with you. Take care, Brent. See ya. 
Hey listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.